0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 26 years we have offered Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming speakers can be found online at ewestminster.org. It's now my pleasure to welcome the final speaker in the Forum's Spring Series. Dr. Michael Oppenheimer is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs at Princeton University, and the director of the program in Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy at the Woodrow Wilson School. He joined the Princeton faculty after two decades at Environmental Defense, where he served as chief scientist and manager of the Global and Regional Atmosphere Program. Prior to his work with environmental defense, Dr. Oppenheimer served as atomic and molecular astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and as lecturer on astronomy at Harvard University. Dr. Oppenheimer was a lead author for the third and the recently released fourth assessment reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He is the author of over 80 articles published in professional journals and co-author of the 1990 book Dead Heat, The Race Against the Greenhouse Effect. Over the years, his research and advocacy have contributed to the passage of amendments to the Clean Air Act and to the negotiations that resulted in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol. He is co-founder of the Climate Action Network. Dr. Oppenheimer has described global warming as the most serious environmental threat and perhaps the most challenging overall problem faced by all countries in the 21st century. He believes that strong political leadership is a key factor in addressing the effects of global climate change. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Michael Oppenheimer.
1: Thank you, it's, um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here, particularly in this um, lovely church. I went to graduate school in Chicago and have very fond memories of this part of the country. My first wilderness experience was a week-long trip in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area up north. Ultimately, it was that trip and my subsequent wilderness experiences in the western part of the United States and in Alaska, that led me to focus my professional life on learning about and protecting the environment. I made that career choice partly out of intellectual curiosity and partly for ethical reasons. I've long believed that scientists whose education and research are often supported by public resources have an obligation to use their knowledge wisely and to give back something to society in the form of the best judgment they can muster about societal problems based on their scientific understanding. My focus on environment is one way that I can give something back in return for the opportunities that I have been afforded. Not coincidentally, I note that the informing theme of this lecture series is key issues in ethical perspective. I believe that ultimately the ethical perspective must undergird any successful attempt to grapple with the global warming problem. Scientists like me or economists or other experts can provide you with reams of numbers and figures such as the latest reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Such information provides a critical basis of support for the recent groundswell of attention to the problem by the public and the sudden rise in interest in seeing the problem actually solved. But ultimately, getting the job done and marshalling the political will to do so depends on how people respond at a more fundamental level to these questions. If greenhouse gas emissions continue, how will the resulting warming reshape our planet? And what sort of place will we be leaving to future generations? Those are fundamentally ethical issues. Nevertheless, given all those years of training, it is inevitable that I approach such problems in the first instance as a scientist. So let me describe how I came to decide that climate change was so important. I first heard about the greenhouse effect and global warming in the late 1960s, At about the same time that I heard about two other human interventions in the climate, warming due to the escape of thermal heat from electric power plants and cooling due to the reflection of sunlight from particulate matter or dust, soot, for instance, in the atmosphere that, like global warming gases, arises from fossil fuel combustion and from deforestation. My first reaction, like that of many people, was one of astonishment. Did humans really hold the power to alter the world as a whole, everywhere, all at once? As it turned out, improved scientific knowledge allowed us to dispense with the concern over heat from thermal power plants, except in rivers where it affects fish and other life. It also turned out that the role of particulate, while not negligible, is not large enough to counteract the effect of global warming. And particulates are likely to decrease worldwide, as they have in the US, because they're a threat to human health. You breathe them. So governments are acting to sharply reduce their levels, which may, sort of ironically, actually cause Earth to warm faster in the future than it would otherwise. On the other hand, you can't solve one environmental problem by letting another go on. So it's certainly correct to fix up the air pollution problem. Recall that when I first came across this understanding, It was a time before the discovery of the ozone hole, before the identification of widespread tropical deforestation, and before the appreciation for the global collapse of key fisheries that is continuing even as I speak. There was no global environment, didn't exist, the construct didn't exist, certainly not in popular imagination. And only a relative handful of scientists paid attention to any aspect of what would soon become a widely recognized and globalized set of problems. Yet I believed from early on that global warming was a serious problem because the physics behind it was sound. Certain gases that exist naturally in the atmosphere act like the glass of a greenhouse. They let sunlight in which warms Earth's surface, but these same gases trap heat radiating from the surface of Earth that would otherwise escape into space. This greenhouse effect is a good thing because without it, Earth would be 60 degrees Fahrenheit cooler, a frozen desert, and human life would never have evolved. Under natural conditions, emissions of these gases come from natural forest fires, which happen, say, due to lightning lightning strikes. They leak from certain parts of the ocean, and they percolate from the bottoms of swamps. Over millennia, and this is very important, over millennia, nature maintained a very fine balance, however, for every ton of carbon dioxide arising when a tree burns, about an equal amount was pulled out of the atmosphere elsewhere by photosynthesis where new trees grew or carbon dioxide would dissolve in one area of the ocean but it would be emitted in another area in roughly the same quantity. I'll return to the evidence for this balance when I talk about ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica a little later, but this evidence allows me to state that we are now sure, and I almost never say sure about anything, but I'm sure about several things I'm gonna tell you in this talk. I am sure that for almost the entire history of civilization 10,000 years, this natural balance was nearly perfect, and it kept the levels of the greenhouse gases just where they should be. It kept them from building up. It kept Earth's climate equable. Then something new happened. Industrialization, with the widespread use of fossil fuels and the broad, widespread cutting and burning of forests, for agriculture, for clearing land for agriculture, which is still widespread in the tropics. In other words, the natural balance was upended, greenhouse gas levels began to increase, and a new phenomenon presented itself, the greenhouse gas or global warming problem. The problem is this. Atmospheric levels of several important greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide, have been increasing in the atmosphere for about 200 years, primarily due to the main drivers of industrialization, a growing population burning more and more coal, oil and natural gas to provide it with energy. Burning these fossil fuels converts them to carbon dioxide and to water vapor. There is so much water vapor already in the atmosphere that this further addition of water vapor is without effect, despite the fact that water vapor itself is a very potent greenhouse gas. But the increase in carbon dioxide is important. Its level has grown by about 30% since the Industrial Revolution. We know this with absolute certainty. In fact, this much was predicted in 1896 by a Swedish chemist, Svante Arrhenius, who ultimately won the Nobel Prize for an entirely different discovery. The greenhouse theory, however, lay more or less fallow for about three quarters of a century until modern computers allowed scientists to make increasingly reliable projections of future climate. In addition, analyses of samples of air trapped in ice retrieved by drilling cores from the deep beneath the surface of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets show that over time, as carbon dioxide levels shifted up and down in response to natural changes in the amount of sunlight reaching the surface of Earth, which in turn is driven by natural shifts in Earth's orbit, the climate oscillated between ice ages and warm periods. We're now in a warm period. The amount of warming and cooling over thousands of years can be largely explained by the changes in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases over the same period. In other words, nature had done an experiment confirming the greenhouse hypothesis many times over, but it took modern humans a long, long time to actually find the evidence, which basically they did about 20 years ago. It was also clear from these same ice cores that greenhouse gas levels and Earth's average temperature had been very steady for almost the entire history of civilization, again reaching back about 10,000 years. And again, the the most recent change is due to industrialization in the last 200 years. At about the same time as all this was going on in the late 1980s, analysis of thermometer data established that Earth was already warming and less than a decade later that humans were the likely cause. How do we know this? Why blame humans? Early on, some argued that warming was merely the result of the urban heat island effect, which you're all familiar with, wherein cities retain heat, particularly at night, and remain warmer than the surrounding countryside. But there are no cities in the middle of the ocean, yet the warming was just as notable there. In fact, Earth has warmed about uh, almost 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit over the last um, century or so. In addition to this evidence about warming, my colleagues analyzed the geographic and temporal pattern of warming across Earth's surface. It's warmer near the poles than it is at the mid-latitudes where we live. That and other aspects of the pattern and the way it changed with time was characteristic of the greenhouse gases and could not be reproduced by any other natural factor that causes climate to vary. For instance, some claim that variations in the sun cause the warming we've seen. Variations in the sun can cause climate to change, but we've had satellites up circling Earth, looking directly at the sun, measuring its intensity very accurately for nearly 30 years. And as the Earth warmed over that period, the sun's intensity was rock steady. So the sun hasn't been doing it. Others suggested that the ever-present veil of volcanic dust, which reflects sunlight from the surface of the Earth, had diminished, leading to warming. But we measure that too, and in fact, the dust veil has increased, not diminished, and a very slight cooling actually would have resulted over the last few decades if it were not for the greenhouse warming. In the past decade, scientists have made these findings more precise and developed a a picture of the potential consequences of unrestrained greenhouse gas emissions, providing, I have to say, a discouraging view of the future. But this discouraging view is contingent dependent on the continued growth of emissions. And that outcome, I believe, is not inevitable and largely remains in your hands still today. We have two ways to figure an answer to how warm the Earth might become if we do not restrict emissions. And these two approaches give about the same answer. First, our computer simulations of the climate forecast a warming of about 2 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit over this century. Two degrees would make Earth warmer than it's been in the history of civilization. It would be a relatively rapid warming. Um, But it would, while being harmful to some countries and destructive to many ecosystems and species, I don't think it would be a disaster for most people in most places. And it even arguably would be beneficial to some people in some places. Think warmer winters in Minnesota, for instance. Um, but I would like to point out that inland and relatively high, high mid-to-high-latitude areas like Minnesota will warm faster than these global average numbers that I'm presenting to you, so figure an extra 50% into these numbers. But an 11-degree warming, the high end of the uncertainty range, is likely to be an out-and-out catastrophe. And we have no way to determine as of today which extreme or where in between we are headed, mostly because we do not know what the future emission level of the greenhouse gases will be, but also because our understanding of the sensitivity of the climate to those emissions is still evolving. Scientists always learn more. The other way of approaching the problem is not too encouraging either. Carbon dioxide has now reached levels not seen on Earth for 20 million years. And 20 million years ago, Earth was a much warmer place. And if emissions are not restrained, carbon dioxide will reach levels during this century not seen in about 50 million years. 50 million years. 50 million years ago is a little after the time when dinosaurs were dominant. Earth was largely semi-tropical or tropical. There were no ice caps, and if that happened today, sea level would be much, much higher. All that change telescoped into a century or two, that would be unprecedented. Given both the certainties I've just given you and the uncertainties, I think any sensible person would say it would make sense to slow down the pace of emissions while we learn more a point I'll return to later. What effects would all that warming bring along? As science has evolved, three consequences of climate change have particularly troubled me. First, first are the potential effects on water and agriculture, particularly in the developing world. For years now, as projections of future climate have become more and more finely honed, certain predictions have remained robust including the expected reduction in precipitation and runoff of water for drinking and agriculture in developing countries, in semi-arid regions, such as those in sub saharan Africa, where malnutrition is endemic even today, even before these problems start. This situation can only worsen in a greenhouse world. So here we have a fundamental ethical question. Don't the countries that emit large amounts of greenhouse gases, including the US, and China have an obligation to the countries that currently and for the foreseeable future have negligible emissions, like those of southern Africa. By the way, it's worth noting along the, um, the way of self-interest that it's not just the developing countries that face this water shortage. It's the entire Mediterranean basin and it's much of the southwestern United States as well. I have two other major concerns. The effects of sea level rise along the coast and the threats to ecosystems and species. Um, Again, in both cases, there's one salient factor, the disparity between the relative ability of rich countries like ours to deal with the problem, although still to a limited degree, even as these countries pump out growing amounts of the greenhouse gases, and the slender capacity of those in many, many developing countries like Bangladesh, which is almost entirely at sea level, To do so, even as they contribute little to the problem. But as Hurricane Katrina showed, there are vulnerable populations even in rich countries. From a very personal point of view, from some deep corner of my own psyche arises a different concern, one that at the end of the day may be why I devote so much time to this issue. And that is the idea of loss, the loss of place, the loss of species the loss of people. Everyone frames problems differently. For me, as an average human being, rather than as a scientist, the losses ultimately are what grab my attention. I don't intend to give you a complete list. It's too depressing and too paralyzing. But I would like to present a couple of examples. As I do, keep in mind the story of human progress as we've seen it has forever been one of loss and renewal. To some extent, we shed cultures, we shed languages, and particularly in the US, we shed homes, hometowns, jobs, and even each other as we move rapidly from place to place. What is unique about the losses associated with global warming is that they will be worldwide, largely irreversible, affecting every aspect of life simultaneously, and for most people, involuntarily imposed, and that, makes it a different kind of loss. With respect to the vulnerability along the coast, some of those, which you may not care about first, but I live on the East Coast, so (laughs) give me a break. With respect to vulnerability along the coast, some of those losses will be immediate. Think of New Orleans, devastated by Hurricane Katrina, perhaps never to return as a great city. Half an American city wiped out in peacetime. Inconceivable. Katrina was not caused by global warming, and we will never know whether or how much global warming contributed to increasing its intensity. It may have. But we do know that hurricanes have become more t- intense on average, and that further intensification is predicted as the greenhouse gases accumulate in the atmosphere. Other losses along the coast will occur gradually. We know that sea level has been rising due to the warming of the ocean and the melting of glaciers, and that this rise, already accelerating, is expected to accelerate more as a century progresses. A higher sea level means we should expect to be fighting a losing battle along the coast with increasing effort needed to protect infrastructure, beaches, wetlands, and ultimately the need to abandon many places because it just costs too much to protect them. We're not going to pay for it all. But in combination with stronger hurricanes, the consequences of a higher sea level could be devastating in many places because aside from planned withdrawal or planned seawalls, occasionally something unplanned like a big hurricane is going to happen and catch people unawares. Of course, there was another loss in New Orleans, hopefully temporary, our trust in the ability of government at all levels to foresee, anticipate, and plan for disaster as well as provide rescue, comfort, and recovery during and after a disaster. This law should weigh on everyone's mind as we think about the changing climate and our possible success or lack thereof in dealing with the consequences. To some extent, we're going to be out there alone. Some of the coastal losses are expected to occur over very long times particularly those resulting from the potentially monumental sea level rise that the potential disintegration of the Greenland ice sheet or part of the West Antarctic ice sheet could bring about. The time over which the latter could occur is at least centuries and perhaps more than a millennium. Some people dismiss dismiss such phenomena as irrelevant, Uh, but consider a 20 to more than 40 foot sea level rise, which is what is at at stake if these ice sheets begin to disintegrate, would necessitate large-scale withdrawal from the coast all over, the coast as we know it would disappear. Although certain high-value areas would probably be protected, and I venture to say where I live, which is Manhattan, is a candidate for for that. But we can't protect the one-third of Florida that a 20 foot sea level rise would drown permanently, or the totality of the Gulf Coast inland as far as Houston that a 50-foot sea level rise would eventually submerge. But leaving the island, but leaving the uh, inland loss aside, think of the cultural loss. Entire island nations and their culture permanently drowned. The culture's lost forever. And think of what lies near sea level that we can't move and we can't protect the cathedral San Marco in Venice, the temples of Mahabalipuram in India, the monuments along the mall in Washington DC to provide just three examples. Aren't these worth protecting for at least a millennium? As astonishing as the scope of loss may be, keep this in mind. Despite the long time scales over which disintegration of an ice sheet may play out, These outcomes could begin and be irreversibly determined by the greenhouse gas emissions occurring over the first half of this century. We could set it in place irreversibly. We know this from consideration of the polar ice extent in earlier times. When the poles were about as warm as they could become within the first half of this century, given just middle-of-the-road assumptions about what emissions are going to do, Polar ice sheets were likely smaller and sea level likely higher by somewhere between 13 and 20 feet. And that's for a relatively modest warming. Only a decade or so more of ignoring the problem may make this outcome inevitable simply because we can't turn around the supertanker of the global economy fast enough to reduce fa- emissions fast enough to do anything about it. We need to get off the dime now. The third category of loss that particularly concerns me is, is that of ecosystems and species. And the overall scope of this pro- protect, projected loss is staggering. 30% of all species would become vulnerable to extinction for a warming of about up to about 5 degrees Fahrenheit, which is in the range of what occur, would occur to the middle or end of the century, and perhaps as much as 70% vulnerable to extinction. 70% of all species for a few more degrees of warming. Here again, I'll rely on one particular example. The Galapagos, Darwin's touchstone, exists in a precarious climatological balance. A mild current from the north, the cold Humboldt current from the south, and the episodic dousing during El Niños that bring warm waters from the west. Typical of this strange mix, which I saw myself last year penguins at the equator. That's thanks to the cool Humboldt Current. But even a small shift in climate may throw this system out of whack, destroy the synchronicity of climate factors, and eliminate the special conditions that allow this niche to thrive. There are many other such examples, the rich cloud forests of Central America, coral reefs worldwide that are vulnerable to bleaching and mortality for even modest warming, What are the ethics of initiating such massive losses all in the course of a century? Let me bring it back home a little bit. What can you expect here? Milder winters, yes, but more heat waves, and people die in heat waves, particularly in urban areas. 40,000 died in Western Europe in a heat wave in 2003 due to the effects of heat. Summer, there'll be more... uh, Precipitation overall, but probably an increased frequency of drought in summer. But ironically, when it does rain, the rain will come in more likely in drenching storms with two, three, four, five inches of rain that create flooding. Forest fires are likely to become more widespread. And overall, the level of waters in the Great Lakes are probably going to drop, which has many, many effects, which will ripple throughout your the system that, that is life here. But it doesn't have to happen. We still retain control over most of the outcome. The recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change makes clear that there will be additional warming, but we have the option to assure that it would be modest in size, small enough for most people to adapt, even in poor countries, slow enough, gradual enough, for most ecosystems and species to adjust, most important, The technology to begin to fix the problem already exists. And the cost of implementing these technologies is not large, something of the order of a decrease of a tenth of a percent per year in global GDP. The obstacles are political, not technical and not economic, to begin to solve this problem. The good news is that public opinion polls, our leaders at the state level, the Congress, and even most recently the Supreme Court, are giving strong signals that the country is getting ready to get the job done. Concern has been raised that China and other developing countries will never agree to these to limit their emissions, China having a lot of coal. But China has a terrible air pollution problem due to fossil fuels, very large exposure to the effects of global warming, particularly along the coast, a lot of people living in low-lying areas an incipient but vibrant local environmental movement, and increasing recognition, even concern, about global warming in official circles. When I was a child, I, along with many of my friends, and maybe some of you, thought there was a strong chance that we would see nuclear annihilation in our time. It hasn't happened, because despite all the obstacles, countries with apparently divergent interests found a way to come together. It can happen again. In the meantime, You ought to do your part, because if you do it and you see it's doable, it gives your politicians a little bit of steel in the spine to do what they need to do, too. Go home, change your light bulbs where you can to compact fluorescent bulbs instead of incandescent ones, because you'll save three-quarters of the energy you use for lighting. Make sure that the next time you buy a car, it gets the highest fuel economy available in its size class. When you buy an air conditioner or a refrigerator or a stove, Look for EPA's Energy Star sticker, which indicates that it is very efficient, uses less electricity, and around here, that means less greenhouse gases emitted by the power plant that produces the electricity. And most important, write your congressman, write your senator, write your governor, write your president. Harass all of them. Let them know that you think this is important. Then they will have the courage to act. Let me close by taking the long view. Once it made it into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases persist for decades, centuries, even millennia. The carbon dioxide increase from the first Model T is coursing through your lungs right now, as you listen to me. But at the same time, consider the revolutionary changes over that period in the way we live. At that time, transport was horse-drawn and the US had just emerged from being a wood-fueled economy. Despite the Wright brothers' adventures, air travel was to remain a curiosity, unavailable to the average American for nearly 50 years. L- laptop computers were unimaginable. The context of life change with lightning speed And our world can be expected to experience change at least a sweeping in this century, greenhouse gases or no greenhouse gases, new energy sources, new modes of transportation, new modes of communication. While these transitions are occurring anyway, let's guide the change, let's use change as an opportunity to reduce the threat of global warming rather than making it even more intolerable and gambling away this wondrous planet before future generations have the opportunity to enjoy it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Michael Oppenheimer. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster and moderator of the forum. Our guest speaker today is physicist Dr. Michael Oppenheimer. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, especially the sponsors of today's event, the James Ford Bell Foundation and the James Ford Bell Museum of Natural History located here in Minneapolis. We invite you to listen to the Westminster Town Hall Forum again in the fall for our series, From Generation to Generation. Further information is available online at ewestminster.org. And now, Dr. Oppenheimer, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First one concerns the resistance that we read about in the papers. Why is there resistance among some scientists to the idea that human beings have contributed to the warming of the planet?
1: There are a few thousand experts on all aspects of this problem worldwide, and there are maybe five who don't agree that it's going to be a serious problem. I am not a judge of the human mind. I don't know why people have the attitudes they do. I do know that no problem this complex ever reaches 100% unanimity in any expert community. And as far as I'm concerned, 99% is enough.
0: Thank you. Is technology available to enable the burning of coal without putting CO2 into the atmosphere?
1: Technology under development called carbon capture and storage would remove the carbon dioxide from, say, the stack of a power plant before it's released in the atmosphere by a chemical process, then regenerate the carbon dioxide under a uh, controlled condition and bury it deep underground in either an, an old oil well or what's called a deep saline aquifer a stable formation about 1,000 feet down. This is already done in enhanced oil recovery. But we've never tracked the carbon dioxide to see if it stays underground. Scientists are right now trying to see if this actually works. If the carbon dioxide stays underground, not for 10, 20, or 30 years, but for 100, 200, or 500 years, it'll help us solve the problem. We should have an answer to this within a few years. What combination
0: of alternative energy options do you think would be most effective in replacing the fossil fuels we are now burning?
1: Everybody's got a view of what they'd like the world to look like. Mine, for the long term, say, 75, 100 years from now, is that most of the energy we use is generated by capturing solar energy, possibly passively by solar voltaic cells, which convert solar energy to electricity. The electricity could be used directly. It could be converted to hydrogen gas by electrolysis of water. The hydrogen gas could be piped around just like natural gas. Could be used to generate electricity. Could be used in power plants. Could be used to power automobiles. There are some problems using hydrogen to uh, power automobiles. So there are other ideas about how to uh, improve automobiles in the future, which would be less dependent on. on uh, fossil fuels and produce less carbon dioxide. Um, One of them is an onboard fuel cell Uh, uh, dominated by uh, natural gas, although there is some carbon in natural gas, so it doesn't 100% solve the problem. There are many ways that are being looked into. So my basic answer is a solar hydrogen economy for the distant future, but you can't get there right away. In theory, we could do it today. It would be much too expensive. You'd you'd probably say, let the world get warmer. I don't want to pay that much money. Maybe not you, but many people would. Um, So The question is, how do you bridge over to a world like that? The answer is, step one, let's stop wasting so much energy. Let's use the technologies we have available to increase the efficiency with which we use energy. Uh, The recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change noted that most experts think that about a 20% decrease in the amount of energy we use could be achieved with existing technologies mostly by increasing efficiency. And much of that would come at a cost saving, because you don't pay for the fuel anymore. Beyond that, a switch um, away from coal toward natural gas to the extent natural gas is available, and then some carbon capture and storage. And some people argue an increase in nuclear power. My own view on nuclear power is, ambivalent at best because until the waste disposal problem is solved and until nuclear facilities are secured against terrorist strikes and against diversion of materials for making weapons, I don't think we can allow their expansion. And uh, recent um, polls indicate the public uh, is ambivalent about it too. And in particular, nobody wants one within a mile or two of their house. So I don't think the U.S. nuclear industry is about to expand.
0: Uh, continuing in that same vein, a question about uh, the, the c- impact on, the, on global warming of aviation versus vehicles, cars, trucks.
1: The direct effect of aviation is that it emits about 3% of the carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere. Not huge, but the thing is it's growing much faster than most other sectors of the economy. Or or if you look at uh, the 20, 30, 40 year trend, if you look at the last few years, there's the ripple effect of 9-11, which slowed down the industry. And so most uh, observers, particularly in Europe, have come to the view that There needs to be some incentives to the aviation industry to get even more efficient. They do pay a lot of attention to fuel economy in the industry because fuel is a high percentage of their costs. And so um, we expect that measures to limit the emissions of carbon dioxide from aviation would bring new technologies on, would grab the attention of the industry even further. But there are more subtle problems, for instance, uh, you've seen contrails come out of, out of the backs of engines of jets when they fly at certain altitudes. Those contrails disperse and form um, the nucleation centers for cirrus clouds. And cirrus clouds can both trap heat and reflect sunlight. They do both. And we don't know how the balance is struck. And it's possible they contribute to climate change in a significant way that way. And that's an area where we need more scientific research.
0: A question from one of our listeners that moves us from emissions from airplanes to emissions a little closer to home. Given that greenhouse gas emissions from livestock now outpace those from vehicles on roads around the world, what perspective do you have on humans eating lower on the food chain, moving toward a more organic, plant-based diet? Uh,
1: First of all, I want to say that although I try to eat not too much meat, I'm not a vegetarian, so I'm... I want to admit my sins in this regard. But it is true, and we've done some research at this at at Princeton, Uh, it is true that there's a lot of waste in converting uh, protein into animal feed and then eating the animal instead of eating the protein first, and there are a lot of aspects of the environment would be improved if there was less emphasis on uh, meat and more e- emphasis on uh, vegetable protein as a direct human uh, uh, food. It's not just uh, the methane emissions, which are an important factor, particularly in some developing countries, it's, um, it's also um, all the nutrients that are used to uh, grow feed corn and the, and the way that they wind up getting into the ecosystem has a tremendous effect on the uh, eutrophication downstream, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico. So all, the, all of the uh, nutrients that are used in agriculture in the whole Mississippi Basin wind up there down in the Gulf and it's causing a lot of damage. So we need to take a close look at the food system and consider carefully what our unintended actions are and there, you can make your own choices. and there is a legitimate argument for reducing dependence as an individual on meat and focusing more on non-meat.
0: Several questions related to the Minnesota environment. Can you predict uh, the impact that global warming might have more specifically on the flora and fauna of our region, the birches, the evergreens, the black bears, the loon, the deer, the rivers, lakes, and streams?
1: Yes. That's a toll. (laughs) I hope so. Rivers, lakes, and streams, okay. On average, more precipitation here, but coming in peaking events, as I said before, which means more flooding, um, but overall more water availability. But in the warm season, probably less precipitation, and because there's warming, more evaporation and evapotranspiration in plants, that means losses of water and a decrease in flows and water availability during those seasons. That could affect, eventually, the the way your water supplies are structured. As I said, there could be a drop in the levels of the Great Lakes. And what I do feel confident about is as the warming proceeds, not the next few decades, but as you get out late in the century and then into the next century, it's more and more likely that you see this area drying out with the plains extending into what are previously the northern forests. It will take quite a lot of warming to do that. But that's eventually what happens if we don't do something about the problem. And that's when you get into the question of what happens to the flora and fauna. They're going to just be changed. Something else is going to be here.
0: Yeah, a follow-up question on our lakes, particularly the Great Lakes. There are those who are arguing that the Great Lakes should be shared to provide water, for example, for the southwestern part of our country, for lawns and golf courses, uh, and maybe even to other countries. What is your opinion, particularly on the geopolitical consequences of the scarcity of water for those of us who have an abundance of it?
1: Well, yes. Yes. There are a lot of, well, I'll just say a lot of water is wasted in this country. It's wasted, the biggest waster is agriculture itself, and agricultural systems need to become more efficient um, in their use of water so that they waste less, use less, and so that what we have can be used for the, um, uh, s- some of the uh, necessary population Uh, I mean, people have to drink, and in some areas, that's already become very uh, pointed. For instance, parts of California hasn't really been so much of an issue in this part of the country. Then, yes, the whole issue of using water as a as as to uh, to support amenities, which may or may not be useful, uh, um, useful they're useful, but may or may not be necessary, uh, such as uh, uh, grass on a lawn. Uh, those are all serious issues. And as the water availability shrinks in many areas, and as I said, the picture here is a little murky, but if you go to the southwest, it's crystal clear there's going to be less runoff in the intermountain west. There's going to be less water for agriculture. There's going to be less drinking water. There's, have to, there's going to have to be a shift in the way people treat water with more efficiency in agriculture, more efficiency at home, too. You know, my water is metered. I don't know if yours is, but that is a good sends a good signal to me about what I ought to be doing with the water. And uh, the U.S. We, we, in the East, we haven't been so used to dealing with that problem. And as warming proceeds, if if the drying area moves up from the south and west toward the north and east, eventually it's going to become a real problem in areas like this one too a question about ethanol
0: as an alternative. Uh, the Minnesota political delegation in the U.S. Congress is very pro-ethanol, in spite of the fact that ethanol production uses most of the resources it is purported to save. Can you help us with a comment on ethanol?
1: <laughs> yeah, ethanol is one of the third rails of American politics. Uh, you know, it looks great, it sounds great. You grow the corn, it takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, so when you burn it and as fuel it just puts the same amount in and nothing happened. Well, that's not quite the case. Corn-based ethanol as it is currently produced in the United States um, takes so much energy to produce that it's not clear whether it actually does no good does a little bit of good as far as the greenhouse effect is concerned, or actually does some damage as far as the greenhouse effect is concerned. So anybody who's selling it to you as a solution to the greenhouse problem as of today, it's trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. But there is hope uh, that a uh, process called cellulosic ethanol could be much more efficient, as for instance is making uh, ethanol from sugar, as they do in Brazil, and could eventually replace some of the liquid fuel. That's one of the things when someone asked me about powering cars a little while ago, that's one of the ways we could make fuel for car that would be truly renewable in that it would supply, um, it would essentially take more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than it put back in. Now, the trouble is that, that that's a matter for scientific research. It hasn't happened yet. We don't have the process down yet. It can be done, but it's expensive, and again, nobody's going to buy it. Not yet. So the current my view is the current bills in Congress that would do a lot to encourage the expansion of our current te- corn-based ethanol technology is totally misguided, and people who are worried about this problem should oppose it.
0: A number of politically-related questions. Here's one of them. What are the three most important initiatives which should be promoted by the President of the United States on the environment?
1: The most important thing this president or the next president could do would be to establish a limit for the whole economy on the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions that uh, are permitted. Number two, develop what's called an emissions trading system so that individual entrepreneurs have an incentive to come in, find ways to produce energy with low carbon dioxide or to use less energy, and then take their savings in terms of these emissions allowances and sell them to others who can't do quite as well. In that way, we have an economic incentive for the country and for individuals to figure out how to solve this problem as quickly as possible. At the state level, we have now the development of caps or limits on carbon dioxide and emissions trading systems. It's happening very broadly. It's happening in California. There's a five-state compact between California, Washington, Oregon, Arizona, and New Mexico to limit carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. Do- uh, California has put a limit on the carbon dioxide emissions from its motor vehicles. New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, um, Connecticut, and, and seven states in the New, in New York, New England region, the North Atlantic, New England region, have also decided to cap the amount of emissions from their electric power plants. Uh, about a dozen states are going to follow California's lead in reducing the emissions of, from tailpipes of cars. So what we have is a groundswell of action at the state level. And you ought to figure out what's going on here locally. I actually don't know, but you ought to, as I said up your representatives and um, that will percolate up to washington and force washington to act it's going to happen the, there is a long history in u.s regulatory uh, affairs of regulation starting at the state level where we have small-scale experiments going on essentially p- policy laboratories where politicians see that it can be done that it can be done without too much difficulty and without too much expense and that kind of experience gives people in Washington the uh, the courage to be the leaders that they were elected to be in the first place. And we are well into that process with the Supreme Court decision mandating that EPA has an obligation to think of CO2 carbon dioxide as an air pollutant and therefore consider controlling it under the Clean Air Act. I feel confident that within either before the end of the Bush administration or the beginning of early in the next administration there will be a comprehensive piece of greenhouse gas regulation but to make sure that happens all of you need to get active
0: and for our final question here a lot of concern about the response of young people to these issues can you tell us how your own students are responding to matter of global warming, what kinds of responses you see there or as you travel around the world with this issue?
1: I, I'm, uh, you know, thrilled and amazed by the response I'm seeing from my students and I hear this from all my colleagues in academia. The registrations and environmental courses are, are up Students wanna get out of school and help save the world. That's what they want their first job to be. They're interested in figuring out what they can do, how they can contribute to solving this problem. And they're even confronting their parents and saying, what are you doing? How could you let this happen? So I think there's a lot of hope for the future. Let's just keep that in mind.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Michael Oppenheimer.